Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. Into. It. Make it so. Thanks to Kate for the last three hours. Kate will be back next Wednesday with The Distance Guy from 4 till 7. You're listening to Bite Into It. Uh, my name's Dan Morganti, and tonight I'm joined by Lily Ryan. Lily, how you doing? Not too bad, thanks. And game changer Adam Christou. Hey, hey, it's uh, lovely to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, thanks for coming in and uh, taking up a microphone and telling us all your thoughts and feelings on games and the games industry. I'm so excited. I, I mean, like, I'm a huge dork, so yeah. let's, let's go. <laughs> You're in good company. Um, how has your week in video games been, guys? Mine's been pretty chill so far. I've, I've been really enjoying the fact that we had, well, I had a long weekend this weekend. I don't know about you folks, but uh, I did take some time to play some video games. Nice. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Time. Yeah. I worked, but also found some time to play video games, um, despite the fact that I had chores and other things to do. And I paid for that with uh, dirty laundry <laughs> and um, other things that should have been done on time. Yeah, don't ask about my dishes. No. <laughs> yeah, the balance of adulting and video gaming is, is quite a complex, like, dance. And some days I'm like, I really should yeah. just do a little bit of, like, cleaning around the house. But at the same time, I'm kind of in the middle of, like, review embargo season on my end. So I feel like I've had to play a ridiculous amount of video games in a very short time. Uh, to kind of get reviews out the door later this week and next week, so it's been it's been odd, um, but you know it's it's a good problem to have, I suppose. That is the best problem to have, I think, but, is too many video games to play. When you have a deadline, less fun. And you know, at the moment, I really want to play some some good long JRPGs, and I do not have the time for them, which is quite depressing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had time for JRPGs, and I've only ever managed to squeeze in three or four. Do you usually finish them, get the stories done? I, I yeah, and sometimes I'll do that horrible post-game grind. Like oh, when I'm really? really connecting to one, I'll be like, hmm, this feels like 150 hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> Far out. No, right. I'm surprised I haven't been dumped by my partner. <laughs> I get the same things. Um, 
Tonight, we're talking to Darcy Smith from Studio Folly about their new game, Gubbins. It's words, it's jazz, it's a vibrant, colourful, shaggy giant. Um, then we will be reviewing Frog Detective 3. What's not to love about a talking frog uh, um, and an interesting cast of characters getting to the bottom of some juicy details? Um, first, uh, we'll hear some news. What's, uh, what's happening in the world of tech and video games, Lily? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, world of tech, those who, those who know me or have heard me talk before will know that I talk about data breaches a lot, but it also, you know, we've been having a lot of data breaches, so there's a lot to talk about. Um, hot off the press this afternoon, apparently Harcourt's real estate agency, the one in the city, CBD, yep. CBD, uh, had a breach. Of course. Cool. You know. Yep. Just coming, rolling like a dime a dozen these days. Yeah. So this one, I mean, it, it comes, you know, off the back of a, a lot of groups warning that, hey, you know, real estate agencies have a bunch of information about us, right? Um, would be horrible if that were breached. Um, and then, yeah, apparently this afternoon, people who have rented or bought properties through High Courts Melbourne have received emails from them saying, hey, look, hate to break it to you, but uh, the thing happened to yeah. us. Um so for more detail on that at the moment, like it's still it's still very much an emerging situation, but it sounds like what's happened is someone got access to an account that belonged to one of their employees and has seen some of the information that they hold, which apparently they're required to hold for like seven years because yeah. of the law. So that's, you know, it feeds back into that really interesting conversation we've been having about, okay, cool. Well, on the one hand... We need to make sure we're doing the right thing security-wise. On the other hand, why do we hold so much data, and where is the where's the drive for this coming from? Yeah, what? Why do we? Because I know like financial documents by companies have to be kept for seven years, but why our personal data and our own like bank details and things like that? What's the? Is has that just been kind of captured up in that law? I mean, I I don't know personally, but is that? Do you know more about that? Is that something? No, that's not. It's not my particular field of expertise, I'm not a lawyer, but there is a lot of stuff that, you know, people feel obliged to keep uh, when when you're doing things like important, you know, like transactions of the size of properties, which are like million dollar transactions and stuff. You probably want to know who you're dealing with. Yeah. And they have to hold that kind of info, bank info, signature stuff, ID documents. Um, it doesn't sound at this point like they have actually downloaded a whole bunch of that data, which was what made a lot of the Optus and the Metabank stuff quite so bad yeah. but it is definitely not great it is something that was entirely foreseen so you know it's a bit of a horror show yeah and this company probably should be taking much more care with people's uh data but how uh real estate agents are perceived i imagine they take they take as much care of people's data as they do their tenants we could, yes, we could do, <laughs> dig into that. <laughs> we do have games to review, but yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Adobe Photoshop um, just got worse. Uh, used to be able to buy it, then it went to Creative Cloud, and now um, you're going to have to pay to use some fancy colours in Photoshop. I love that. Um, so more nickel and diming from large tech giants. Um yeah, uh, the widely used Adobe app Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, um, no longer support Pantone-owned colours for free, and those wishing for those colours to appear in their save files will need to pay for a separate licence. Um, so, yeah, you have to buy exterior licences for Photoshop now, which is already much, much worse. Do you guys use Photoshop or any of the Adobe products? 
Oh, look, it just sounds like maybe Adobe had a falling out with Pantone and maybe there's some sort of issue going on with licensing there. I don't really know. I, I don't like how Adobe Creative Suite has gone and how expensive mm-hmm. it's become. Yeah. Even for non-for-profits or for students, it's still quite expensive. So um, I haven't been using it for a long time. Yeah, it took like the worst business models of like American cable TV and said, well, we, we can do that. We can make more money off stuff with that. It's... um. Yeah, just uh, par for the course with Adobe now, I think, is just what, terrible decisions. What I want to know is if you have a, an image, you know, in Photoshop or whatever, and you are using a color that happens to correspond to a Pantone color, does it, like, if it's the same hex code or something, does it just vanish? Do you then see, like, a, a, a gray part? Or is it something where you have to have licensed it through through Pantone? Yeah, it could get that, like, uh, hash uh, black and uh, gray and white um, color tile coming up saying not in use or something like that. Hey, I don't know. I'm yeah, not. Like, uh... Sorry, your hair is now color of the year <laughs> and uh, gonna have to pay extra for that to be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do not know, but I can imagine it's uh, creating quite a few headaches for artists and people who use um, Photoshop and Adobe products. Yeah. Um, what else has been happening? Yeah, uh, well, if you were around an Apple store over the weekend, you may have noticed at one o'clock there was a work stoppage uh, across a whole bunch of, of Apple stores as uh, they're currently in the process of negotiating for better workers' rights. So um, workers at Apple are being represented by the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union at this moment to try and get better rights uh, for those that are working in the Apple retail stores at the moment. So uh, last Saturday, there was a work stoppage uh, at approximately 1 p.m. Melbourne time and simultaneously around the country at that time as well. Um, and it all has to do with the fact that the current um, agreement that Apple workers are under is actually below the minimum standards of the award rate uh, that they should be given. So, um, you know, if this current um, uh, deal was to go through, they would be substantially worse off compared to other people working in similar industries. So, um, you know, it's a pretty important issue. And hopefully if you were around an Apple store and saw some of the action taking place, you were there to support the workers. And here's hoping that there's a resolution coming soon down the pipeline. I think it would be a big win uh, for for tech workers and for, and for people in retail and big tech arms as well to be able to have uh, some proper benefits come through through union organization and, and work stoppages uh, helping push it through. So um, something to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you know anything about this show, we're big fans of union work and mm-hmm. um, getting better um, deals for employees, basically, um, especially for a big company like Apple. It's It boggles the mind just how much they like they're scraping money off their off their employees and other areas of um development yeah plus they call their staff geniuses you think that they would have got an idea that maybe the staff would figure it out eventually yeah they weren't getting paid enough yeah it's it's almost like a a misnomer that uh genius's name because uh you know when uh one of your friends comes back from the apple store and like oh yeah i had these geniuses help me they're using it as like a slur against the people who work at apple like um, I mean, that's not about the story, but no. <laughs> that's just about the genius's tag. No, but right on. I'm glad that they're, they're standing up for themselves. That's yeah. awesome. Triple R. You're listening to 3 Triple R, Bite Into It. Time is 14 past seven. Uh, and coming up next, we have an interview with Darcy Smith from Folly uh, Studio Folly. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Bite Into It here on Three Triple R. Gubbins is a friendly puzzle game where you play t- place tiles to construct words with the help and hindrance from weird little powers called gubbins. Minimalist typography alongside mischievous cartoons serve as a kooky canvas for wordplay. It's essentially solitaire meets Scrabble with hilarious friends wreaking havoc. Uh, we're joined by Darcy Smith from Studio Folly, um, the mastermind behind the game. Darcy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. No problem. How good is your spelling? How good is my spelling? It's improved a lot over the last few years, I'll tell you that much. What, what has encouraged that? Well, I mean, when you make a game like this, I feel like you get a, a fairly intimate uh, understanding of the, the, the English language. Um, it's been a lot. Yeah, yeah. Can you please explain to us uh, exactly what Gubbins is? Because um, I, I, I love the, the look, the feel, uh, friendly giants and uh, mushrooms and skateboards and stuff getting in the way. Um, can you just let our listeners know what... Uh, what the game is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a word game. Uh, it's, it kind of plays like Solitaire meets Scrabble, uh, but with this kind of like psychedelic visual um, component to it um, and also some, some beautiful kind of like jazzy tunes. Um, it's intended to be kind of like a mobile forward word game, but I think we're going to release it on other platforms now because the fidelity is just like high enough where we feel like there's enough, um, you know, material for people to sink their teeth into. Um, and, yeah, it's just, uh, it's sort of grown organically to become this, like, really unique and weird beast, but sort of still an accessible title that people like my mum can play, who's only really uh, messed with word games in terms of her gaming experience. Yeah. So what's the reception been like to this? You say your mum's played it, so is, it, is there a wide audience for this kind of game? Uh, well, I mean, Wordle broke down the walls a little bit. Like, when we started it years ago, like, started working on this game, uh, we were, sort of had this kind of theory, like, oh, you know, maybe there's room to move in the word game space. Like, maybe something's about to happen. Maybe there's room for innovation. And then Wordle happened, and we were like, okay, we were correct. We were just a bit too late. We were just, uh, you know, a couple, a couple, a year or so late. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, it blew open the the industry and uh, allowed for more more word based games to come through. Yeah, I mean, we think of it like it's like a blessing and a curse uh, because I think that there's a whole sort of like uh, a group of people that are sort of like um, inspired and wanting more from word games now. They're like, okay, I've done Wordle, I've like got my streak up. I'm like, but now I'm a bit bored of it. But I do like now they're word game players. They weren't beforehand. Um, and on the other hand, there's just like a whole bunch of weird companies making word games now, you know? Well, uh, one of the things it says uh, that, that, you know, material says about Gubbins is that it's a roguelite environment, which is something that Wordle is not. How how does that work in context of a word game? I'm super curious. Okay, sorry, what was that? It was a what environment? Roguelite. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like, I mean, because I like classic games. Like, though, though we sort of have a goal at um, Studio Folly to try and make games slightly more accessible and make games for people that don't necessarily play games, in quotation marks, um, 
I love roguelikes. I love like classic video games. Um, and so I sort of took this kind of roguelike mechanic, like, you know, power-ups that appear every time you play a small selection that sort of curates your toolkit through a run. And then after you complete that run, um, your toolkit is sort of wiped. Uh, and then you'll start again from the next game. And that's, that's how the governs work. Like, you know, the pencil... You might be playing around and you'll be you'll get the pencil for that particular run and the pencil acts like a blank tile in Scrabble, for example. So it'll fill in the blanks. But next time you play, you might not find the pencil. Or you might find a different gubbin that works better with one that you've already sort of selected for that run, if that makes sense. So it's, it is a roguelike word game. But it's not something that we front with because I don't want to scare away non-gamers, you know? Mm. I'm I'm always fascinated about like how mechanics get developed in a game and how a like a, a developer feels like a mechanic is really clicking or working for them and how sometimes that can be a, a happy accident or at other times it's a real process of iteration before you find the thing. And I, I'm curious about the gubbins themselves. Were there any that didn't work? Any you've thrown out? Uh, what, what? How did you know what was working within this game and what needed to go in the bin? I mean, visually, we, are like, basically haven't had a miss yet. Like, because I guess how we work uh, with our artists, um, we've got Georgia Chris um, and Zach Say. Georgia Chris is our animator and Zach Say is our illustrator. And we kind of really wanted them to contribute to the game. So we're not, like, trying to coach them to make something specific. We just go, like, hey, make a weird broccoli friend and then make this <laughs> broccoli friend wiggle, you know? And then whatever they give us, we're stoked to receive. It's always amazing. Functionally, everything is changing under the hood constantly. There's some weird effects that, like, you know, uh, are too much or, or don't work and we iterate on them or pull them out or swap them out. Um, you know, an example of that is, like, our programmer just implemented a feature, like a, a govern today, which is a light bulb that makes you allows you to make words in any direction um, because you're limited to just your standard sort of to the right and down uh, in within the game. Uh, and that effect we have to try and see if that's helpful or useful. So, you know, a lot of it's like theory crafting from a distance, put it in, check it out, feel it out, and then if it needs a little bit more, maybe you can balance it or um, if it's not working, maybe you just pull it out. What um, What's your personal favourite gubbin? I mean, I have grown, it changes because uh, we'll get an illustration and I'll be like, oh, that's my favorite gubbin. <laughs> and then we get that, like, gubbin animating. And then I'm like, you know, it then if in the animation stage, it changes. At the moment, I love the sock. The sock is this really weird creature that just, like, really came to life with its animation and sort of like, it's like a sock friend that sort of almost looks like a, uh, a duck or a goose sort of quacking at you, if, but a sock puppet, if that makes sense. It's weird, but it copies a row. So if you get a great word, you can, like, duplicate that row over and over. I was curious to know a bit more about what what was behind the name Gubbins as well. I went to school with someone whose surname was Gubbins, so it just makes me think of them, but I assume that not everybody did, so... <laughs> Well, I mean, Gubbins is a name. I mean, Gubbins is a word for, like, odds and ends and knickknacks. It's just kind of like, I think it's sort of an English word that isn't really used very regularly. We sort of stumbled across it just from the term, like, you know, just in the way of, like, um, we're looking for a name that encompassed knickknacks and odds and ends and just, like, you know, the stuff that you find in a junk drawer, really. Um, and that's sort of 
um, we latched onto this word because it was kind of ugly cute and it kind of sounds like a word because, I mean, technically it is a word. It just people don't really use it. So we've, we've capitalized on a dead word. Oh, I love that. I also love the, the potential that's in there for like some pretty cool plushy broccoli merch, which now I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we have, we have fridge magnets. So that was a no-brainer. So oh, yeah. we, we made fridge magnets and we were giving them out and selling them at packs. Um, and now people are showing us all their fridges, like with all their rude words um, dressed across their fridges, which is great. And uh, as well as like a very distinct visual style that can help with all that merch, um, it's got a very distinct uh, musical style as well, which is uh, like it's got it's very jazzy. Um, wh- where where did all this uh, jazz come from? <laughs> well, uh, it came from the mind of uh, our composer Katarzyna Wojtowski. I mean, one of the early on in the sort of like the process. We were just like, what do we want to make? And then it was it was more minimal and less bombastic than it was now. But we were like, let's have some jazzy tunes. And when we met Kat uh, at a cafe in the city, uh, she sort of mentioned that there was a studio that she really wanted to go to uh, to record her own music. And we, Jess and I, looked at each other and walked away from that meeting. And we're like, we're going to get her and we're going to send her to that studio that she mentioned that she loved so we sent her to rolling stock studios um in collingwood and we we came with her and she collected you know six or seven musicians or so and they laid down this beautiful track that sort of serenades you as you play and uh it's sort of naturally it's it's sort of built in a clever way where it can grow more intense and less intense and that reflects uh, the state of the board so the more chaos that you're in currently in the game the, the music kind of responds to that what were you there for that recording session? Yeah, yeah. That must have been awesome to have like local artists, and because uh, so much of music development, uh, mu- video game development with music is done over email and um, from coast to coast these days. Um, what was that like uh, being in the studio when they were making that? I mean, honestly, it was surreal because it was in between lockdowns, like, last year in August or something. So we had, like, I don't know if you recall, we had, like, a week or two that it kind of, things opened up and then they closed down again. Um, And our date just so happened to land in that open. Um, So it was really special. It started to just, like, that was when it started to feel real, like we're making an impact on sort of, you know, people's lives and, um, you know, it's pretty weird for a mobile forward game to go sort of so ham on composition, but, like, you know, Jess, my business partner, and I, uh, well, Jess, fiancé and business partner, (laughs) and I were like, why are we doing this? We want to make cool stuff like what are we here to do like do we want to just like go to fiverr and you know get five people to make some music or do we want to like find the cool people like around us um that would really thrive in this opportunity and make something special so it was it's part self-indulgence and it's part sort of like trying to be responsible and run our company like we think other people should be running the companies yeah i mean that just goes to to speak of your artistry and how much that seem you seem to care about that kind of stuff, um, you seem really proud of the the work you do. Like, how important is like your creative vision when you're making these these games, especially for like a genre like mobile games, which um, you know is is often maligned. Um, that's a good question. Um, in terms of like my creative vision, like I. I 
my my creative vision it's almost like not even my creative vision is important first firstly it comes us uh, like and our lives really the contributors like at the end of the day we're making video games um, and whilst there's sort of a wealth of opportunity in the industry it's like the industry has a bad habit of sort of um, almost like encouraging you to put it above your yourselves so we just come at the business from like a real sort of people oriented way and just say like you know if we're happy and healthy then we can come and we, we have sort of rope to sort of express ourselves and take control of elements of the the game and the business um you know we'll make amazing things and so far so good yeah absolutely <laughs> my, creative, my creative vision is like very compromising like i i want a great composer so i can be told what to do with the music um, and and sort of it's almost like I'm a coordinator to sort of bring these pieces together and let people express themselves in a way that's uh, I guess symbiotic. Yeah, well, it seems like you've done just that. Um, where can people get Gubbins? Uh, at the moment, it's not available yet. Uh, we're, we're sort of um, hotly approaching uh, an iOS-focused Australian-only launch, just to sort of like test the game and see where we're at um but that should happen this year yeah uh but then uh yeah keep keep your eyes peeled uh, peeled and and sort of uh you can follow us on twitter if you'd like to to get to get the updates for when we're coming it'll be next year awesome all right we'll be keeping our eyes peeled for gubbins on our devices um darcy smith thanks so much for coming on the show thanks so much for having me coming up next we've got a review of frog detective 3 Triple R. Frog Detective 3, uh, 1 and 2, brilliant. We're about to hear about the third one uh, with its off-the-wall uh, Zoomer humour, as uh, Adam has called it. Um, Lily, what's, uh, what's happening in Frog Detective 3? I got stuck into Frog Detective 3 over the long weekend um, and it was a great alternative to horse murder. Um, <laughs> I have played. I, pro- I played Frog Detective One. Uh, the the premise of Frog Detective is there's a frog. He's a detective, solves mysteries, and you you get to act as the frog to solve those mysteries and uh, interview all of the people who might be involved, gather clues, run errands for people, and and eventually untangle the whole mess. Yeah. Have you been? Have you played Frog Detectives One and or Two? I've played Frog Detective 1. It occurred to me while I was starting Frog Detective 3 that I skipped Frog Detective 2, um, which was apparently okay because at the beginning there is a very short recap of the cliffhanger ending of Frog Detective 2. Ah, right. Where the frog you know, frog detective receives a phone call saying, we need you to go to a location to yeah. investigate another mystery. Um, it picks up right from there um, with with another character who who acts that that conversation out for you. So even if you are like me and you missed Frog Detective 2, you can still, you know, be be across what's happened there and then you go to this uh, this mysterious location to solve a mystery. Perfect. Um, without revealing uh, the answer to this mystery, what what's the mystery about? It's a very... Uh, so you, you end up in, a, in an outback town 
maybe a, it's not actually an outback town. It's more like a Western town, sort of got Back to the Future 3 vibes, maybe to go with Frog Detective 3. I don't know if that was coincidental or intentional. Well, it says um, the tagline is uh, corruption at Cowboy County. So that yeah. uh, lends a bit of yeah credence to the fact that it's in an uh, old West town. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an old West town. Everybody rides scooters around everywhere because you've got anthropomorphic animals. So riding a horse would be very inappropriate. Yeah. Um, so scooters, cowboys on scooters. Um, and as Frog... As Frog Detective, you go to the town, you're presented with a conundrum, and you are there to meet the, you know, the number one best detective, Lobster Cop, who is going to be your partner during this this exercise. Yeah. Um, to to solve the mystery in the town of the missing hats. The missing hat. Yeah. That's the that's the deep mystery that we've got to solve. All the town's hats have gone. <laughs> yeah. That's... And you got to figure out who did it and how. Okay, so th- this is the point where I'm jumping in because I I always have a fascination with how video games approach humor and yeah. how in a lot of times video games don't quite nail it. Um, that sort of quirky sense of humor, that sort of oddball sort of comedic timing. Um, you know, I, I've always seen Frog Detective as sort of absurdist in how it approaches humor, but it seems to hit it every time. It doesn't miss the punchline with a joke. How did you feel about... The humor in this game, was it funny? Did you feel like some of it was a bit grating? Did it hit the mark for you? I enjoyed it. It's definitely very much in the vein of what I, you know, of Frog Detective 1 and presumably Frog Detective 2, unless that was a very massive departure from the franchise. Um, just a lot of, I mean, it sort of contrasts really nicely with the, you know, with the, the artistic style where you have, you know, animals, anthropomorphized animals, um, very, you know, simple kind of shapes, block colors, that kind of thing. Um but also some really nuanced dialogue as well. Um, you know, this game, when I was playing it, I did not expect for a game that was a, you know, a frog detective investigating some missing cat hats to be, you know, a kind of nuanced takedown of the prison industrial complex, but it is. <laughs> really? Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> There's a romance subplot. It's wonderful. Um I, you know, I can't say too much more about that without spoiling it, but it is something where I think that, you know, a lot of that, that humor, um, depends on that juxtaposition, that, that contrast between sort of a very simplistic stylistic thing. And then bam, it just hits you with like an ethical conundrum, um, several actually, in fact, during the course of the, the, um, the game. And I think that that is really what makes it for me is that it, it hits that balance, yeah, and I guess in terms of gameplay, I, I guess like I've always considered Frog Detective a sort of point-and-click adventure meets visual novel, mm. so sort of um, exploring an environment, walking around it, clicking on things to see what you can interact with, and then having conversations and referring to a journal. Um, has much of that changed, or is it still that sort of gameplay experience? The gameplay is really similar, yeah. Um, there is a a lot of that, you know, conversational thing, the interaction with everybody, um, you you do have to you know like people requesting things from you you go and you have to fetch items and you know complete quests for other people that will then that enable you to complete further quests for you know and then you, you sort of you tie up all the loose ends um i i think i spent about two hours on the game and it was a delightful time but yeah it definitely follows the same kind of formula again where you have a bunch of different tasks very well defined you go, you do the thing, you have a lot of really fun conversations with all of the different characters and a lot of the joy in the game is just the way that these characters interact with you because each one of these characters is a character. Um, my favourite character in this one was... Uh, um, actually, I'm not sure what animal she was because 
unlike most of the other animals, she didn't have the animal name in her name. Her name was Rhonda Dynamite. And um, yeah. Was she a dynamite? I I just really would love that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, wonderful character. But most of, yeah, most of the joy in this is just about, you know, enabling you, I think, to really appreciate the dialogue while the game mechanics, you know, go on, uh, you know, fairly straightforward. Did the, this is like a, a writing heavy game, a dialogue heavy game. Did, yeah. did any of it fall flat or was it all pretty much on the mark? I mean, if it's got a um, subtext of the prison industrial complex, well, perhaps it's, uh, you know, fairly well written. Um, how was how was the writing? Yeah, the writing was, I mean, I, I found the writing was honestly exceptional. Like it did, as I said, strike that balance um, between having a really kind of flippant conversation about someone trying to make a stew and then contrasting that with like the history of the town and and this kind of thing that that made you think about the larger context of the world even the even the discussion that happened around like well we wouldn't ride a horse because this this is a town made of anthropomorphic animals why you know we we all ride scooters which is a conversation that happens very early on in the game um it does enough of that, I think, fourth wall breaking tension stuff to kind of make it interesting, make it clever. There wasn't any part of it that that pulled me out of it. I think the one thing that has remained consistent from the first the first frog detective game that's come right through this one is that the the conversation is fairly formulaic, and you have several kinds of different answers you can go through, um, and. There's no graceful way to exit once you've exited that loop. You know, you kind of have to go through the main menu of conversation options again in order to get back out of it, in order to go and do the next thing. But that was a fairly minor gripe in in what was otherwise just a really lovely time. Yeah, right. So out of how many lily pads would you give this? My lame attempt at humour. I'm glad (laughs) I don't write for Frog Detective. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm 4.5 out of 5 lily pads. I'm uh, yeah, I'm going to say. Um and I would I mean, I think that there were just some really great quotes that came out of it. One that I think is really great for us, cyberspace is a really troubling place. That that's a good that's yeah. a good little rhyme. Yeah, no, it's it's good. It left me wondering if crime was real. As in like ethically and morally, philosophically. Yeah. Any, any and all. Like the question is posed multiple times and it's a very good one. <laughs> you, can, you can strike you as flippant, but at the end it, it also turns it on its head and makes you really think. That's uh, very profound for a two-hour humour game about a it'll frog. Laugh. Yeah, yeah, you'll and laugh, a, you'll cry, it'll make you think. Yeah, a lobster cop. Yeah, that's great. Um, so recommend this for the Triple R audience? Absolutely would. If you liked the other Frog Detective games, you will love this game. If you've never played a Frog Detective game, you'll be in very safe hands. It definitely sets you up to understand what it's all about. As far as I'm aware, it's also the end of the Frog Detective series, which is a bit bittersweet. Yeah. Um, hopefully Grace Bruckner can move on to something uh, equally as hilarious. Lobster cop spinoff, potentially. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Coming up next, we have some rants about some video games we've been playing, Death Stranding, if you've heard of it, and Ikea is getting up to some nonsense with uh, a video game studio. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
So IKEA has asked a horror game uh, developer to change so people stop comparing it to IKEA. Um, Lily, do you have much uh, much uh, phobia of IKEA yourself? I actually quite enjoy going to IKEA. I don't know why people. Well, I, I could understand why people dislike it, but I always have fun. Yeah, me me too. I uh, enjoy the meatballs. Um, but uh, yeah, this uh, this reminds me of uh, an SCP about. Uh, for those unaware, SCP is a collaborative narrative project about a fictional anti or sub government agency um, that deals with anomalous, I find it hard to say that word, (laughs) um, entities and features and structures that are... Mm. It's basically just like horror sci-fi. It's the X-Files for Tumblr and also kids on YouTube. Yeah, it's X-Files Wikipedia. Um, But because it's like uh, what's open, Creative Commons, or I think that's what it is, um, anyone has the rights to reuse any of the narrative material that's put up there it's very Uh, good creepy pasta generation yeah that's exactly it and i feel like this game is coming somewhat off that yeah so it actually is explore the underground scp laboratories and build towers to the sky to find a way out yeah um so it it does for context you're trapped in a furniture store that is reminiscent of ikea it is not ikea but it kind of looks a little bit like an ikea and this alone has made ikea a bit concerned shares similar yet distinctive enough to not get sued colors um with the with the big box furniture store (laughs) i don't know if they're like pantone specific but (laughs) apparently they could get sued they got a cease and desist letter and then they said that they um they've because they they, they don't use the word ikea anywhere apparently they haven't even used any assets that were like based on ikea furniture no no uh No. No, no bliblobs? I, I don't know. Whatever the furniture in Ikea <laughs> the, is called. The developers, like, we use generic game assets, so I don't know what you're going on about, but uh, maybe that says something about your furniture. I don't know. Anyway, the... <laughs> the um, yeah, no, the letter said, your game uses a blue and yellow sign with a Scandinavian name on the store, a blue box-like building, yellow vertical striped shirts, identical to those worn by IKEA personnel, a grey path, furniture looks like IKEA furniture, product signage looks like IKEA signage. Um, so they... They think it's an Ikea. Yeah. I've got to admit, it does look a bit like an Ikea. Yeah, I mean, I'd hate to admit that it does exactly look like (laughs) what they're trying to evoke, um, a big box furniture store. This game isn't even out yet, though, and they're getting this cease and desist. Like, it's it's not coming out until 2024. Honestly, um, I want to play it, and I wouldn't have heard of it unless Ikea had done this, so they've streisanded themselves The streisand effect, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of SCP, and uh, I played a couple of other SCP games. Haven't been great, but um, yeah, I have high hopes for this one. Um, I like the story a lot as well. Yeah, uh, it's called the store. Wait, the store is closed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in uh, more ranting news, um, I've been playing Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima. And for those unfamiliar, Hideo Kojima was uh, originally a developer with Kotaku. No, that's the website. What? Uh, Konami. Konami. Konami, sorry. Yeah. Konami. Um, and Konami famously uh, or infamously mishandled uh, Kojima as a um, creative director. Uh, there was a lot of behind-closed-doors name-calling and uh, eventually... Kojima was let go and the first game he made with his new Kojima Studios was Death Stranding with uh, The Walking Dead's Norman Reedus, uh, horror director Guillermo del Toro and a bunch of other um, actors and 
Uh, I've been playing it. Um, Adam, have you you've played Death Stranding? Yeah, I played it around its release, and it was definitely a game when it came out that was quite like it really divided people. Who kind of there were some people who found the gameplay to be quite monotonous and quite wildly kind of odd. Yeah, because um, essentially you it's it's sort of like a you are like a air tasker slash like deliveroo for the post apocalyptic future worker. Yeah, you are dropping off parcels from A to B and navigating through long stretches of empty environments. And every now and then there's a paranormal thing that happens that you kind of have to sneak away from. Um, there is some kind of phenomenal kind of book ending sort of story at the beginning of this game and towards the end it really ramps up again but really 50 hours of this game is like barren wasteland walks and building infrastructure to make those walks a little more tolerable get package um, deliver package yeah and and i'm curious like you, you you've been playing it how, how are you feeling about the whole process of the yeah back and forth walking uh so far i'm really enjoying it i like um that as you go along uh there's you don't see any other players, but you see the effect that other players are having on the world. So other players can put up signs, give you a little bit of um, guidance uh, with whatever sign it is. Um, there's like tracks that are, the more you walk a track, the more that the, the a path will grow out, um, like will crush the grass and a path will grow. You can build bridges, there's ladders and ropes and stuff left behind by other players. So I'm really liking this like phantom player element where, you can feel other people are playing the game around you, but um, you can't see them. You just like see where they've been and interact with objects that they've left behind. I think that's really cool. Um, the story is insane, wild. Like there's, uh, you have a baby in a bottle that was stillborn but alive and can interact with you but can't talk and allows you to cross over to the other side between life and death there's a beach which is apparently the way that people connect with the the other side um there's the aging rain let's not forget the rain that makes you old when it hits you yeah yeah so yeah you have to wear a special jacket which is um time resistant time resistant yeah there's um there's just a lot of insane elements that are brought together um that uh Yes, it, like I just cannot make heads or tails of the story. Um, just real off-the-wall stuff. Um, and uh, Kojima's like hailed as like a visionary uh, video game developer, like a, an author of video games. Um, and I'm not seeing that in this game. The, I've never really played the Metal Gear Solid games, which is what he's known for and what, what made him famous. Uh, they were also famous for their um, convoluted... Uh, stories and winding and crossing over um, stories and stuff like that. But um, the dialogue's very exposition-y and the story so far I cannot uh, fathom or make heads or tails of. It's po- There's a post-apocalyptic scenario, um, but how... Essentially, you're connecting everyone to the future NBN, which is like almost <laughs> like... like that, that is the plot of this game. It's like you are trying to connect everyone to the chiral network, which is built off like... The energy of the afterlife um, in this post-apocalyptic world, which is basically like a, a super fast internet where you can like reconnect all the fragmented parts of America uh, back together as one whole thing. It's about nation building That's and about communities thing. coming together. It's very camp. It's, it's very, very weird. It's very much into rebuilding America, which mm. uh, it's a Japanese game. So it's so bizarre that it's... Uh, 
and America looks like Iceland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, I All think... the Scottish Highlands. As much as this game doesn't work narratively, there is some tremendous actors on here. Like, Mads Mikkelsen is playing, like, a prominent antagonist in this and is just going all in on his performance yeah. with some of the most outlandish lines and dialogue that I've seen in a video game. And kind of seeing all these actors kind of really go the extra mile with what they've been delivered is probably the most fascinating part of this whole experiment is, like... The performances are brilliant and are kind of a lot better than what we normally get in terms of acting in video games. So that alone, I think, makes it an intriguing experiment. But man, you need 50 hours of tedious walking to get to some of the good stuff. Yeah. And I do like that some of um, they have like tracks with um, lyrics in them and they'll come on as you're walking from time to time. And that's actually like uh, just pleasant, uh, Mm. a nice break from the like the weird. BTs, which are the extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional um, attackers. But, yeah, uh, I'm having fun with Death Stranding and I will be um, playing more of it when I get home. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.